and welcome to Free Thought Politics Podcast brought to you by Kurzana, the breaking news engine. So thank you guys for tuning in today. We have 13 stories to get to a pretty pretty packed show. Um, so I want to get right into those. But before we start, if you guys haven't already, remember to check us out on Twitter at Free T Politics, Facebook Free Thought Politics, rate, like, share, subscribe on SoundCloud and iTunes, Free Thought Politics, and check out our website, freethoughtpolitics.com. All right, so let's get into the first story. So five people in di- have died in an, explo- in an explosion at a shop in Leicester City in, in England, in the United Kingdom. Residents say they heard a big thud like an earthquake at the time of the blast in Hinkley Road at about 1900 GMT on Sunday. Five other people remain in hospital, one in critical condition, in critical condition Leicestershire police said. Um, at this stage, the explosion is not being linked to terrorism. Um, officials are saying the building consisted of shop premises on the ground level and two-story flat above. Witnesses said the shop was formerly a Lundis, but recently became a Polish supermarket. So, sadly, five people have died and have been um, confirmed, dead, confirmed dead. Uh, this isn't linked to terrorism. This can almost be viewed as... Well, we really don't. We really don't know what the cause is. So it it could have been somebody left the gas on and lit a cigarette. It it could be a variety of things. So um, we don't actually know the cause, but what we do know is five people have been confirmed dead. So this is a horrible situation. Um, so make sure you keep their families in your thoughts and prayers. All right, let's get on to the next story. One person was killed and over 20 were injured Sunday as police fired live bullets and tear gas to dispense, to disperse banned protests calling on Democratic Republic of the Congo President Joseph Kabila to stand down. The church-backed protests in the, in the Democratic Republic of Congo come after months of tension sparked by Kabila's prolonged rule in a long-delayed election in the vast and chronically unstable country. In the capital, Kinshasa, one man was killed as police opened fire on demonstrators, according to a senior doctor at the city's. St. Joseph de Lamette Hospital. Since 7 a.m., we have received three injured people from the Catholic March. Two were seriously injured, and one died from a bullet wound in the chest, Francois Kanjingulu said. The brother of the man who did not give his name sobbed as he identified the deceased as political activist Rossi Mukendi Shimanga. He said a police officer had shot my brother at close range. AFP journalists at the scene saw an internet an international committee of the Red Cross ICRC team take the protesters' body to a nearby morgue. Um, so, I talked about the situation in the Congo probably a month ago, um, maybe like a month and a half ago, and I really I started talking about it. What 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 they're doing in the Congo is you have church-backed cr- protests from Catholic Catholics, Coptic Christians, um, protesting new president. Really, what they want is an election. They want him removed from office, but they really want an election because this election has been pushed back and pushed back and it's been delayed. So what the Congolese government is doing is going into churches, arresting altar boys, shooting priests, and firing tear gas in the middle of a service and calling it a protest. This, you know, people, unrest heightens. When you start to make it illegal to have peaceful resistance. When you say it's illegal to protest here, it's illegal to protest there, it's illegal to protest in the city centers. We saw this in Kenya. 
um, where they made it illegal to protest in Nairobi and other various city centers. So when you make it illegal to simply protest, not violently protest, because I don't think, you know, people realize it's still illegal to have a violent protest. That's still illegal. I know that's hard, might be hard to wrap your mind around, but that's still against the law. So when you make it illegal to peacefully protest, then you only heighten the amount of unrest. Because if we peacefully protest, we're going to get arrested. So why not do it violently is almost a thought. Why not have some sort of action against it? If people are, I've said this before, you know, I'm by no means, I by no means support violent and violent protests. If, you know, okay, say, let's, let's look at the U.S. All right. If people protest against police brutality, if. The police, you know, obviously they're going to try and contain it in some way. If they're not acting violent towards you, then don't act violent towards them. If they act violent towards you, then make an argument that you shouldn't at least defend yourself. And when we have a situation like in the Congo, where, you know, there's already been a protester killed, there's... You know, there are fires, they're firing on protesters. And then they expect the protesters to just peacefully disperse? No. One of the reasons we have a Second Amendment in this country is so when the government becomes tyrannical, we can at least defend ourselves. And that's what's going on in the Congo right now. The government is becoming tyrannical. You have a leader who... Is refu- is, isn't holding elections. There's no elections in the country. You have people that are trying to peacefully protest and they're being violently shut down for it. So when they react violently to that, I don't blame them. They should. You know, I don't want... I, I If there's a peaceful way to go about this, then by all means, let's do it. Let's go about that peaceful way. But when the government has completely erased any peaceful way of going about it, then if we go about it peacefully, they're just going to kill you. They're just going to kill you and arrest you and silence you. We've seen that happen. When the Nazis invaded Poland, if the people in the Warsaw, in Warsaw Ghetto would have just said, oh, let's peacefully resist the Nazis, they would have all been killed and put down and Warsaw wouldn't have been a thing. Manoa was the longest uprising against the Nazis. Is the largest uprising against the Nazis in the Warsaw Ghetto. So sometimes, going about things peacefully when the people that are oppressing you aren't doing it peacefully, then, listen, if, you know, them, if in the Congo they said, alright, it's now illegal to protest, and if we see you, or, and, I'm, I'm just trying to think of a situation where they could be peacefully, um, stopping them from protesting, but then when, that wouldn't work. 
if they were saying, hey, we don't agree with you guys, but we're going to let you protest. And then the people protesting acted violently, that would be 100% wrong. But they're saying it's illegal to protest. And we're going to arrest you and literally kill you because that's what has happened. If you protest and then if those people react violently, then I don't blame them. Their government has become tyrannical. Their government has become a totalitarian state. Alright, so, um, yeah, we're going to keep you guys updated with the situation in the Congo. You know, it's not, it's not over. It, it doesn't look like it's going to be over anytime soon. Um, but we'll be sure to keep you guys updated. Alright, Papua New Guinea. Um, has sent troops and rescue workers after a powerful earthquake struck the Pacific nation's mountainous interior Monday and damaged a gas plant and other buildings. Authorities warned of aftershocks and landslides. There was no official information on fatalities or injuries in the rugged region, but one unconfirmed report of deaths. Assessment teams were heading to the, to the affected areas near the 7.5 magnitude quakes epicenter, which the U.S. Geological Survey said was some 90 kilometers or 55 miles south of Porjera in Inga province. It is advisable to stay out of multi-story buildings, to be aware of the potential of landslides, and to be prepared to move to open ground in the event that an aftershock is felt. The Chief Security Secretary to the government, Isaac Lupari, said in a statement. The tremor hit a depth of 35 kilometers around 3.45 a.m., U.S. seismologist said, adding that there was no tsunami threat. A 6.0 magnitude aftershock was recorded by the U.S. GS at 4.26 p.m. nearby. The region is home to oil and gas production. ExxonMobil PNG said buildings at its Hyde's gas conditioning plant were damaged, but all its staff were safe and accounted for, with non-essential employees to be evacuated. The term non-essential employees, I mean, sounds like we're talking about the government shutdown. If they're not essential, don't have them. But no, we're not, that's, that's not what we're talking about here. Um, so... Papua New Guinea, just uh, just north north of uh, north of Australia. So, since it's not a de- developed country and it's in a mountainous region, it's going to be hard to get those confirmed um, injuries and fatality numbers. So, there aren't any confirmed ones yet, but there are there are unconfirmed ones of uh, reports of death and. When it's a 7.5 magnitude quake, that seems like that's probably going to be the case. You know, we just can't confirm it yet. Um, so, this is uh, this is a bad this is a bad situation. You know, we've seen earthquakes happen in impoverished countries like Haiti. Um, so they happen in Papua New Guinea. You know, who knows what the uh, death toll death toll could be and what the damage could be. Um. So we'll, if there's anything major that comes out of this, we'll be sure to report on that. All right. So man, we're kind of we got three done in eleven or twelve minutes. Not bad. Not bad. It's four minutes of story. I think I'm getting better with that. You know. All right. So let's go on to the next story. So. I've been talking about one of the main things that I've covered on this show. One of the main things I've been talking about is the crisis with um, the Rohingya Muslims in Myanmar. The Rohingya Muslims um, 
just kind of a quick rundown of it. The Rohingya Muslims are a very small minority in a Buddhist majority country of Myanmar. They live in Rakhine State, which is, I believe, on um, the western side of uh, Myanmar. And the Myanmar government views them as terrorists. There were some militant Rohingya attacks and apparently and against Myanmar, um, the Myanmar government. So now the Myanmar government is taking to killing, torturing, raping, murdering every Myanmar or every Rohingya Muslim they can get their hands on, essentially. Now, the, the situation is different because the Myanmar government, the president of Myanmar, doesn't have the control over the military like, say, Donald Trump has over the military. So, the president can't just order them out of a region or order them into a region. So, it's a little different, but her lack of inaction has proved damaging, horrible, disastrous. Um... So the Rohingya Muslims are fleeing, fleeing in the Bangladesh, which is a Muslim-majority country. But as we see with refugees across the entire world, you know, re these refugee centers or refugee camps aren't aren't safe, aren't the bet, aren't aren't good conditions at all. So these people are fleeing their homes, their villages have been burned down, destroyed, and they're fleeing their homes. Um, so, the UN has been kind of intermediating in this situation, and they've been, they've agreed on some sort of plan to bring the Rohingya back to Myanmar, but they don't want them to just dump them in Myanmar, they want them to go to their actual houses, their actual villages, and them actually be there, not burned down and destroyed. So, that situation is still going on in Rohingya. Um, in Myanmar, but hundreds of desperate Rohingya Muslims are still pouring over the Myanmar border into Bangladesh every week, bringing harrowing accounts of torture and murder six months after a military crackdown sparked a massive refugee crisis. One of the recent arrivals, Nur Muhammad, said his village in Myanmar's Rakhine state was surrounded by Buddhist vigilantes for days before they were allowed to leave. The Mogs, Buddhists, torched our houses, kept us confined and starving, Muhammad said. Villages are razed to the ground. We walked for days through mountains to reach here. 30-year-old Anayatula was among the 200 Rohingya who crossed the Naf River into Bangladesh on Friday. Most of his neighbors had left earlier, part of a 700,000-strong Rohingya exodus since August 25th, leaving behind desolate and burned-out villages. We stayed all these months hoping the situation will be fine, but in recent weeks, security forces have taken away our young men. If they abduct 10, only one returns. Anayatola told AFP. Anayatola also accused Myanmar security forces of torching his shop, prompting him and his three brothers to flee their home in Mongnapara village near the town of Buthadong. The military crackdown in the north of Rakhine has been termed ethnic cleansing by the United Nations and the United States. While Bangladesh and Myanmar talk of reparating the refugees, the influx of the influx continues. Some days, 200 people cross the border, on others a few dozen make the perilous journey. More than 2,500 have entered the overflowing camps in Bangladesh so far in February. Hundreds of Rohingya villages have been torched in the crackdown, according to refugees and monitoring groups. 
Human Rights Watch said Friday that another 55 villages have been raised since November. The Rohingya have been systematically stripped of their legal, legal rights in mainly Buddhist Myanmar in recent decades and face rampant discrimination. Myanmar denies seeking to eradicate the minority, but refuses to give UN investigators access to an area where thousands of Rohingya are believed to have been killed. And what I was just speaking about was uh, in November, Bangladesh and Myanmar signed an agreement to reparate some 750,000 Rohingya over two years. Last week, Zaka sent a list of 8,000 names to Myanmar for verification. So, Myanmar doesn't even recognize them as citizens. They think they're illegal immigrants from Bangladesh, so why should they have any rights? Okay, alright, maybe... Maybe they are illegal immigrants. They're not, but let's just say they are illegal immigrants. Does that then justify the murder, the torture, the rape, the burning down of their villages, the destroying of their homes? Does that justify that? I don't care if they're illegal immigrants from Syria, Mexico, United States, Poland. It doesn't matter. They're people, and that does not justify the horrible treatment that you have placed upon them. You know, Myanmar denies um, that they've been seeking to eradicate the minority. But then they'll refuse to give UN investigators access to an area where thousands of Rohingya are believed to have been killed. If you've done nothing wrong, give the UN access. You have this mounting criticism from the world that you have systematically tortured, raped, murdered, and destroyed villages, and had carried out policies of ethnic cleansing against Rohingya Muslims. And... If you're right, here's a chance to cleanse yourself of all accusations. Let the UN go, let the UN in. But you won't do that. This isn't talk this isn't talked about readily on the news. When we talk about refugees, we talk about uh refugees in the Middle East. We don't talk about Rohingya refugees. Um because the US isn't involved in that. But These people aren't terrorists. Myanmar views the, defines them and views them as terrorists. What is terroristic about simply existing as a minority in a country? Okay, let's let's agree with you. Some of them carried out terroristic and militant attacks. All right. Why are set over? Why are hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of innocent Rohingya Muslims then grouped in with that? Why are they now responsible for that violence? Let's say everything you said is true. They're illegal immigrants and some of them have carried out terroristic acts. So you're going to treat hundreds hundreds of thousands of these Rohingya Muslims like you are with Policies of ethnic cleansing and genocide. They're not just fleeing to Bangladesh just because they're bored and they have nothing to do on a Tuesday. No, they're fleeing to Bangladesh because that's the only place. Even if it's 
somewhat bad condition. If even if it's bad conditions in Bangladesh, it's better than in Myanmar because they don't have as much of the threat of being killed or tortured. Whether they're Muslim, whether they're Christian, whether they're Buddhist, whether they're Hindu, they're people. It does not matter. The fact that we view these people as that we are viewing these people as terrorists and ruining their lives and just killing them because of it is a sad situation. It's, it's a horrible situation. We as a people, as the human race, should be outraged about this to no end. 750,000, over 750,000 have fled to Bangladesh. The Myanmar government is not it. 750,000 people don't just get up and walk away because they're bored. They don't just get up and walk away because. They do it because they'll either be raped, tortured, or die if they stay. Alright, so, um, let's get on to one, let's get on the one more story. Um, you know, we're gonna keep talking about the Rohingya situation. I have my, I have some, you know, I have problems with the UN, um, in some ways, but, you know, they do act as some sort of intermediary in these situations, and I think that's good. I think that's their purpose. Alright, so let's get on to the next story. So, nearly half of the population in war-torn South Sudan is experiencing extreme hunger, with many more set to run out of food as famine looms, government and UN agencies said Monday. A year after South Sudan became the first country in six years to experience famine due to a drawn-out civil war, its National Bureau of Statistics warned that 40% more people were going hungry this year, even before the lean season sets in. The State Bureau said in a statement that in January, 5.3 million people, representing 48% of the population, were facing acute food insecurity. In 2017, some 100,000 people were affected by a famine, meaning people started dying due to lack of food, it was declared over in June. Improved access and massive humanitarian response succeeded in containing and averting famine last year. Despite this, the food insecurity outlook has never been so dire as it is now, said a joint statement from three United Nations aid agencies. So this is another example of how the United Nations is doing, doing good in the world. I mean, you know, these are... I mean, look at South Sudan. You know, I, I just did a report on it um, last last show on Friday about how top officials were going to be charged. But, you know, we're talking about... I just did two stories on people that are horribly mistreated by their own governments and are dying because of it. The Rohingya story and then this. If I wouldn't be, I don't want to say tuned in like I'm a genius, but if I wouldn't be already following these stories, there's no way I would have heard about this. You have horrible famines in Sudan. Horrible famines 
in South Sudan, and you have horrible refugee crisis in Myanmar. Where's the talk about it? People don't seem to have that empathy, that caring towards those people. You know, I, there's a picture on this AFP article of, of a little baby that's like, at most, two. Suffering from malnutrition and malnourishment. You know, the UN can do its best, but it's not going to fix this problem 100%. If we're looking to give any aid money to countries, maybe we should stop giving it to Israel. Maybe we should give it to South Sudan. Maybe we should... Give money so the UN can do these things. I know you don't want to give money directly to the South Sudanese government because there is corruption. And that's why Africa has a lot of problems. It's not because of the people. It's because of the corruption in the top, of top officials in the governments. So if we're going to give any aid money, give it to help these situations. Give it to help people in Myanmar. This is where aid money should go. If the U.S. is going to exert its influence, if we want to, you know, protect... Innocent people, like we say we do when we attack Syria for gassing its own citizens, if we want to protect its, protect people, innocent civilians, this here's a case. Why don't we do it? Um, so, obviously the UN is doing all it, all it can really to fix this, and that's what the UN's purpose is, you know. You might have your problems with the UN, but abolishing it would do a lot of harm to the world. We wouldn't have that intermediary body that can intermediate, essentially, between Bangladesh and Myanmar. And organize some reparations for Rohingya Muslims. We wouldn't have an agency that is monitoring the famine in South Sudan and is trying to do all they can to... Get rid of the famine. Alright, so we're going to go to a quick break. Um, when we do come back, we have two more stories, um, two more international stories, and then we're going to get on to a few about um, a few domestic policy stories. So make sure you guys stay tuned, and we will be right back. And welcome back to Free Thought Politics Podcast, brought to you by Kurzana, the breaking news engine. Um, so, something I said that, something I started last Monday was, after we come back from the break every Monday, at the start of the second half, we're going to read a list of people um, from Baltimore City that have been, a list of Baltimore City homicide victims from the previous week, because nobody gives attention to them, you know. Obviously, and rightfully so, we always memorialize when there's a school shooting or shooting at a church or a nightclub, whatever it may be. And rightfully so, I'm not saying that we don't, but if we're really going to tell ourselves that we care about people dying and care about, care about people's lives, then we also need to focus on these people as well. These people are being killed. Now, I realize some of them... It may not be under the, I, I don't want to say, but it might maybe under somewhat nefarious circumstances. But I right now, that doesn't matter. There's still 
Some are fathers, some are mothers, husbands, wives, sons, daughters. These are still people whose fam these there are still families that don't have these people in their lives anymore. So we're still we're gonna focus on them. All we're gonna do is read their names, you know. And we're just gonna read their names, you know, where they died, how old they were. And at least give some homage to them. So um, there were one, two, three, four, five, six. There were six, sadly, six homicides in the past week in Baltimore City. Um, on February 19th at 5 p.m., and- Andreas Tamaris was found dead in the 3200 block of Eastern Avenue. He was 47 years old. On February 21st at 1.30 p.m., Dorian Cook was found dead at the 500 block of Mc- McMeckin Street. He was 32 years old. On February 21st at 8.10 p.m., Juwan Eskridge was found dead at the 3800 block of Oakford Avenue. He was 20 years old. On February 21st at 9 p.m., Tyrone Manning was found dead at the 200 block of North Payson Street. He was 32 years old. On February 24th at 4.30 p.m., Preston Green was found dead at the 1800 block of North Smallwood Street. He was 26 years old. On February 25th at 5 p.m., Jasmine Chandler was found dead at the 5100 block of Park Heights Avenue, on, and she was 28 years old. So this is six people that died in the previous week. Three died on February 21st. I mean, I I know that just by reading their names like this isn't giving them as much... I'm trying to do at least a little bit. You know, it might not be the most, it might not be, oh, we're not dedicating a whole show to him, though that is in the works, um, talking about Baltimore, the epidemic in Baltimore City of violence and crime. Um, but there are people like this that just fall by the wayside. They get shot and killed, nobody really cares, nobody knows the names, nobody pays attention to them. And then that's it, and that's horrible. I'm, I'm trying to do at least something. All right, so let's get on to the uh, next story. So I spoke last week about strikes um, by pro-Assad forces in eastern the eastern Ghouta region of Syria. So Russia's president Vladimir Putin has ordered a daily humanitarian pause in fighting in the Eastern Ghouta enclave in Syria. It will start on Tuesday and include the creation of a humanitarian corridor to allow civilians to leave. The rebel-held area has been under intense bombardment by the Syrian government with Russian backing for over a week. It has led to more than 540 deaths, according to a medical charity. Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shogo made the announcement saying the ceasefire would run from 9-0900 until 1400 local time daily. He said more details on the quarter will be released soon. The United Nations Security Council unanimously called for a 30-day ceasefire on Saturday. The resolution demanded that all parties cease hostilities, sorry, cease hostilities without delay to allow aid deliveries and medical evacuations. Russia has been accused of delaying the UN vote for several days by asking for changes to be made to the draft. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres has described the situation as hell on earth and demanded immediate action. My question is um, to Putin, you know, 
you realize now that there are civilians that are wrapped up in this, that in this, you know, Russian and Syrian bombardment of Eastern Qatar, you're killing, and okay, maybe inadvertently, let's say that, it took you this long to realize it? I mean, I kind of knew, we all kind of knew that it was happening. We all knew that these bombs that were being dropped in Syria were killing civilians. This isn't brand new news. Like, breaking revelation. Syrian civilians killed by bombardments from Assad and Russia. No, this isn't breaking news. We've knew, known this has happened. I, I'm glad that you're at least doing something now. We can praise you for that. But we also have to criticize you for the fact that you let this go on for so long. Hundreds upon hundreds, if not thousands of civilians have been killed. And you're just now doing something. Good job, let's do this, but let's stop all of the strikes. Have you ever maybe, have, have you ever thought that one of the reasons there are rebel groups that want to get Assad out of power is because of these strikes? So maybe the fact, if you stop killing your citizens, stop killing these people, they won't be doing that. So let's just say we have this town, and the, you know maybe it's Eastern Qatar, any town in Syria, any city in Syria, all right. You have a small, very small rebel faction that wants to get Assad out of power. You know maybe they've killed a couple pro-Assad forces. Okay, so the majority of the town really doesn't you know have a feeling towards it. They just want to live their normal life because in reality that's what a lot of people want. So you have this small rebel faction, then Assad, pro-Assad forces, carry out airstrikes and bombardments of that city. Inadvertently, yeah, they'll kill some of the militants, you know, that small little group, but they'll also kill civilians. So say you're, you know, 20-year-old, 20-year-old kid, your parents get killed by pro-Assad airstrikes. What are you going to do? Say, oh yeah, I still support Assad. Or are you going to now join that militant group? And is that militant group then going to become larger than it was? That's what's going to happen. It's not going to be just, oh, well, we bombarded and we killed this militant group. Oh, no, it's okay. We're still pro-Assad. We're still pro-Assad. No. And then Syria will continue to bombard them and it will only grow that militant group. You'll kill five civilians and maybe two militants? But you'll create 10 more militants. You'll create 10 more rebels. Now, the, the situation in Syria, the complexity of this. You know, you have Syria, Iran, and Russia kind of on one side. And then the U.S. is supposed to be allied with Russia in some way. And then the U.S. is supposed to be allied with Turkey. But the Turks don't like the another group we support. So, the situation in Syria doesn't look like it's going to come to a close, in my honest opinion, within the next decade. And with the U.S. past history of involvement in Middle Eastern affairs, and now that we've gone into the gone into Syria, and Rex Tillerson, the U.S. government has said that it is part of a longer-term commitment, in my opinion, and this isn't a professional, this isn't an expert opinion, in my opinion, this situation in Syria won't end in the next decade. And that's a sad thing. If it ends, good. But if it doesn't, People are going to die, and people already have. All right, so let's get on to the uh, next. Let's get on to the next story. 
We're really doing almost only international stories today. Um, but they are, they're, they're still, you know, they're not just throwaways. They're still very important stories. Alright, so China. Um, China's ruling Communist Party has proposed scrapping term limits for the country's president, the official news agency said Sunday, appearing to lay the groundwork for party leisure party leader Xi Jinping to rule as president beyond 2023. The party's central committee proposed to remove the constitution move from the constitution the expression that China's president and vice president shall serve no more than two consecutive terms, the Jinhao News Agency said. Xi Jinping has finally achieved his ultimate goal when he first embarked on Chinese politics, that is to be the Mao Zedong of the 21st century, said Willie Lam, a political analyst at the Chinese University in Hong Kong, referring to the founder of Communist China. China has seen some pushback from this, though, and they are moving towards censorship. So, criticism of their, their idea to abolish the term limits has seen censorship soar since Sunday. So, while censoring social media is a regular occurrence in China, the latest incident may mean the Communist Party's proposal to scrap presidential term limits and essentially allow President Xi to rule indefinitely was more unpopular than anticipated. After the proposed change was announced Sunday, critical posts began flooding both Weibo and WeChat. According to What's on Weibo, a website that tracks trending conversations on the Twitter-like service, many call the announcement scary. I posted this before, but it was censored within 13 minutes, so I will post it again. I oppose the amendment of the no more than two consecutive terms of office as addressed in the third section of Article 79 of the Constitution, a Weibo user wrote. Arg, are we, we're going to become North Korea, wrote another, according to Reuters. We're following the example of our neighbor, another said. But Reuters reported these posts were moved late Sunday evening. China is a dictatorship. They've been a communist dictator. They've been a communist dictatorship for a while. I have people say Com- China's not communist. Who rules China? The Communist Party. They're communists. If the a party came to prominence in the U.S. and they called themselves the Democratic Socialists, which a lot of some people on the left really like, they will be socialists. You can try and say you're not, but you have socialist in your name. Just like in China, you have communist in your name. The communists... China is ruled by communist dictators. Communism does not work, nor will it ever work. It is based upon... The oppression of its citizens. It's based upon the suppression of ideas. Just look what is happening in China. President Xi Jinping thinks, oh, you know, he, he honestly might think that it is better for China if he were to be dictator. Hitler thought it would be great for Germany if he did what he did. He didn't go in there with the intention of screw the Germans. No. Xi Jinping thinks it will be good for China to do this. But China is a super powerful superpower. But they're just moving to a communist dictatorship. And that also brings up the question of if you have a you know com- if you have a dictatorship in North Korea right next to China, how's that relationship going to be? You know, is China going to be on our side if we're a de- presidential democracy and China is a communist dictatorship? Are we going to get along to talk about the other dictatorship that we're? You know, kind of trying to figure out how's that going to work out. Um, you know, there's probably going to be no pushback. This is going to happen almost. This is, he's, he, you know, Xi Jinping has already said he wants to be the modern day Mao Zedong. 
So, I can't see this not happening. I Listen, there's obviously pushback in... This is unpopular in the Chinese among Chinese citizens. Chinese government's just censoring it. They're not trying to fall back on it or you know roll roll it back. No. So China has gone full on dictatorship, full on communist dictatorship, but that wasn't super surprising, honestly. Alright, so let's get on to the next story. Let's go to the U.S. We only have time for really one or two more stories. Really one more story. Alright, um... Here, I wanna... Here, I'm gonna move this story to the front a little bit. We can talk about the other ones. They're not the biggest in the world. We can save them for Wednesday. Alright, so, obviously, we talked about the Florida shooting quite a bit on this show. I talked about it when it happened. Was it last Wednesday, or... Two Wednesdays ago, I talked about it, you know, or two, not last Friday, but the Friday before that, I talked about it a lot, and, you know, I've, we've talked, done a lot of stories on the show. Uh, one thing we talked about last week was, and I tried to focus on, was the failure of the Broward County Sheriff's Department and the FBI in stopping this shooter. You know, one instance was, you had... A school resource officer, a school, a police officer at the school that failed to go in because he was a coward and just was perfect and just let 17 kids die. Now, I'm not saying he could have stopped it, but he could have done something, maybe. But Broward County Sheriff uh, Scott Israel, he's been a very, he's been very vocal about this situation. But the thing with Sheriff is he's also political. It's not a police chief. It's not Baltimore City police chief. He's not elected. He's appointed by the mayor. The sheriff is elected. Um. So, with with him having to be elected, he also has to. He has to. He's inherently political. He's a Democrat. That's okay, I'm not against that. That's perfectly fine. But he's also said, I'm not going to win re-election unless something happens on guns. That's your main concern, is election? Um, But he appeared on CNN. He appeared on CNN State of the Union Sunday morning and said that he had provided amazing leadership to his department, even though... He failed to adequately follow up on red flags about the shooter who killed 17 people at Majority Stone and Douglas High on Friday, on February 14th. Later on Sunday, the Florida Speaker of the House, along with almost every other Republican House member, released a statement asking Governor Rick Scott to suspend Israel. They accused the sheriff of, among other things, failure to maintain a culture of alertness, vigilance, and thoroughness among his deputies. Jake Tapper was asked about the men- Jake Tapper asked about the many calls made to the sheriff's office, expressing concern about Cruz who had been described as a potential school shooter in the months before the massacre. Here, let's play um, let's play the clip from uh, Scott Israel on CNN State of the Union with Jake Tapper. Uh, let's talk about the, the missed red flags. We now know at least 18 calls were made to the Broward County Sheriff's Office related to the shooter prior to the shooting. Let's talk about them. In February 2016, your office received a call that the shooter made a threat on Instagram to shoot up a school. 
One of your deputies responded, and according to your records release, the information was forwarded to Deputy Peterson at the school. What, if anything, was done with that information? Uh, I'm not sure if anything was done with that information. I do know uh, as far as notifying uh, the, the person uh, or, or go, notifying either Palm Beach Sheriff's Office or one of the local jurisdictions, depending on where uh, the killer was living at the time. But Peterson did, uh, I think, report Cruz to DCF, if I'm not mistaken. He he did uh, get receive medicine. He did get medical treatment. Uh, and as I said, of those 18 calls, two of those calls are being, 16 of them, we believe, were, were handled exactly the way they should. Two of them, we're not sure if uh, our deputies did everything they could have or should have. That's not to say they didn't. That's not to say they did. Which are the They've two? Which are the two? Which are the two that you're looking into? Uh, one was the call from a woman in, in Massachusetts, and uh, uh, the other one uh, uh, escapes me uh, right now. But we're looking into those two calls. We will uh, absolutely find out what we did uh, or what we didn't do. And as I said uh, in a press conference uh, a few days ago, and we'll handle that accordingly. In one of them uh, in September but, 2006. But, but let's not. But let's. But hold on one second, Jim. Yeah. Let's not. Let's not forget the whole crux of this is. Giving law enforcement, giving uh, deputies, giving police officers, not only in Broward County, but in Florida and around the nation, expanded power to be able to do something more than just write a report. That's the whole reason I went on CNN isn't, at the isn't town making, hall isn't sir um, So there you see, you know, he's kind of... He's he's kind of fumbling with it, you know. He has 16, 18 calls about this kid. Eighteen calls about him. Sixteen of the eighteen were handled correctly. Apparently, he doesn't really know about um, the two of them. The other two. He said, "You know, I can only take you responsible for what I knew about. I exercised my due diligence. I've given amazing leadership, amazing leadership to this agency." That just seems like, oh, let, let's puff yourself up. Let's, let's, who cares about, you know, why we messed up? Let's just puff myself up because, you know, I have elections to win. Um, Broward County officials had actually said in a strongly worded statement released Saturday night that they had responded to 23 calls involving Cruz and his family since 2008. Both, but, both, but BuzzFeed News obtained records that showed the actual number was at least 45. Israel had been facing criticism for days over the missed warning signs and the fact that the sheriff's department deputy who was at the high school when the shooting began took cover inside instead of entering the building. Israel fired that deputy, Scott Peterson, and said he was devastated by his actions. Um, He, he actually put him on unpaid leave and then that deputy resigned. So, 45. Forty-five times they visited his home or had interactions with this suitor. You know, if... Okay, if they still didn't have the power to take his guns away, then yeah, they should. If you visit him 40... If he says, I'm going to shoot up a school, I don't care. You lose your guns. That's a terroristic threat. That's a terroristic threat. I believe dream of being a school shooter one day and you do it in a public manner. There is no reasonable expectation of privacy. You get, you lose your guns. If the, if, 
you don't have that power, then you should have that power. But if you do have that power, then it is ineptus that caused this situation, and Scott Israel should be fired. He's trying, you know, you can make this about guns all you want, but until we address the the things that make these kids do this, nothing's ever going to happen. We're going to have another one. He might do it with a knife, and yeah, he might kill less people, or he could do it with a bomb, and he could kill more than 17 people. Because believe it or not, that has happened in other places around the world, and has happened in the U.S. So until we address that mindset, nothing's going to change. You know, I heard someone say, not all school, not all people that shoot up, not all school shooters are mentally ill. So just by saying we need to tackle mental illness really doesn't do much. Listen, I'm no psychologist, but if you shoot up a school or really seriously think about it, you have something wrong in your, in your brain. You don't just shoot up a school and be 100% mentally stable. Whether it be a very small thing or a very large thing, you have some mental illness and some mental stability. To say that just because just to say that you shooting up a school doesn't necessarily mean you don't have a mental illness is I'm sorry, it's stupid. It's stupid. You have some sort of mental illness, and that's not to stigmatize people with mental illness. That's just to say you don't shoot up a school and be perfectly okay in the head. Alright, so, that's going to be it for the show today, guys. Thank you for tuning in. Um, we're going to do a movie review for, on Wednesday, for the 1517 to Paris, so make sure you guys tune in for that. Thank you guys for sticking around on the show, um, for the show today. Have a great rest of your day Monday. Today is Monday. Yeah, it's Monday. Have a great rest of your day Monday. Have a good Tuesday. We'll see you guys Wednesday. Remember, um... Well, thank you to Krizana, the Breaking News Engine, for coming on as a sponsor for us. We love it. We love all the things we can do with them. Um, if you haven't already, check us out on Twitter at Free Tea Politics, Facebook Free Thought Politics. Like, share, subscribe on SoundCloud and iTunes, Free Thought Politics. And make sure you check out our website, freethoughtpolitics.com. We'll see you guys Wednesday. And as always, keep fighting. Peace. <laughs>